Welcome to the About Sex Podcast. I'm your host, Angela Skirtu. I'm a licensed marriage therapist in the state of Missouri and an ASEC certified sex therapist. You can find me at www.therapistinstlouis.com or my podcast, www.aboutsexpodcast.com, which is what we're interviewing for today. Today, I am interviewing Stan Strombecki, Emeritus, is that how you say it? Emeritus. Emeritus. Oh, you know, I can't say that wrong. (laughs) Emeritus Professor of Art, Washington University. Um, Per your own bio, you said, I've been participating artists for the past 42 years and have throughout my career had an interest in the representation of the human form. I've worked in museums and collections both here in the USA, and my work can be found on all seven continents. I've also taught full-time on the university level for 42 years. Thank you for joining me today, Stan. Great to be here. (laughs) So, all right, that was kind of like the more professional, formal bio, but why don't you just tell me in your own words, like, what is it that you do and why does it matter to you? Well, big questions, right? Sure. <laughs> the, the, I guess part of it is that being an academic, it means that you don't need to have an immediate financial outcome to everything mm. that you do. If you're a commercial photographer, you've got to pay the rent, you've got to, you know, support the studio, your staff, whatever. But as an academic, you're doing what we call research. Oh, and so in, where does the money come from? <laughs> well, that's the that's the that's the bad part of it. <laughs> There's no, there's not a lot of NEH money for the kind of research that most of us do. But you're doing it for the art, not just for the... Sure, (laughs) sure. But that idea that you can be involved in a direction of art making that isn't necessarily tied to an immediate financial commercial outcome. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've taught the history of photography. I've certainly taken uh, not only the kind of course of study that you would get in your education, but when you teach the history of photography, when you teach the history of art, it gives you kind of an insight into the art making process that I think a lot of people aren't often privileged to. I've always been in interested in the figure. I've always said that there isn't anything concerning visual art and representation that I couldn't like solve a problem or answer a question that didn't involve the human figure in one form or another. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I've taught studio photography. I've taught uh, the use of the figure uh, throughout my entire career. And I think that gives you kind of a self-awareness of how the figure is represented. Mm -hmm. And I'm really concerned, or I really think a lot about this idea of representation of the figure. Uh, One of the lines that I'm very fond of using with my students is that if you only photograph really hot-looking 19-year-olds, your work is about really hot-looking 19-year-olds. So I've, in my career, I've always tried to represent a really broad spectrum of the human condition. Can I ask, so I have a thought and a question. The thought is, you know, every magazine that I think I look at is only photographing hot 19-year-old women or what I think it's creating in LA or in terms of like the culture and the community that we're seeing visually is that even as you age, you have to try and stay looking like a hot 19-year-old woman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, what do you think that... What do you think that's doing to women? Oh, I think that really messes with people's heads. Mm-hmm. This summer, 
I photographed, uh, I think, 27 people in my studio. And it's part of a longer project that I've been doing, oh golly, for at least 10 years of bringing people into the studio and, and kind of doing photo shoots with them. But this year in particular... I photographed a, a larger number of women that were in their 40s and 50s. Mm-hmm. And um, for the most part, I don't know them particularly well. They often come to me referred to by other people. Mm-hmm. And uh, in chatting with them, they said, you know, I struggled my whole life in my 20s and 30s with body image, mm-hmm. with uh, how I looked, with how, how much I weighed. And I'm in my 40s and 50s now, and, you know, I'm okay with the way I look. (laughs) It took that long to finally... But, you know, I can do the same thing. So I did want to throw out there, I'm one of your models. I did it once this year. My picture is somewhere in here hidden. (laughs) But it's funny that I I also, for the same reason I think I was doing it, I, I wanted to... I wanted to feel good in my skin. And I think a lot of women throughout our lives, and men too, but I mean, a lot of these are representations of women, at least in front of me. Um, But our whole lives, we kind of feel like we're not good enough, we're not pretty enough, we're not skinny enough, our boobs aren't big enough, or they're too big, you know? And like, and and it's funny, but even the way clothes are made, I think uh, even enforces that for us because like um, I have really huge boobs in case anybody, (laughs) they're not on the video, but I have humongous boobs and I've always been aware of them when I buy swimsuits and swimsuits that don't represent my form, that make me feel weird and um, almost grotesque, which is not how I think of myself, but as a result of, to your point, 19 year old (laughs) visuals, and just in our 20s and 30s, seeing all, all of the women in front of us are just, they have to be perfect figured. They have to look like almost young men, weirdly, but feminine, feminine men. Uh, it's, I think it's impacted all of us. Yeah, and I know when people come to me, very often they've never modeled for an artist before. Mm-hmm. And they want that experience of doing that, but at the same time, you know, they want a safe place where they can do it. They don't want it to turn into some weird, inappropriate scene. Uh, there are a lot of, well, you know, quite frankly, there are a lot of photographers out there that are, what's the word they use, bad actors. Oh, you know, <laughs> it's really a ruse well, to get you naked. <laughs> yeah, they're just, you know, they're just skeevy characters or whatever. Uh, I try really hard to kind of present a very professional kind of situation that I photograph people in, but I also try to make it really positive. Mm-hmm. And I... You know, I photograph people of all different body types. What are some of the things you do to make it a positive experience? Well, I think first of all, it's communication. It's how you talk to people. It's how you position them. I try to be in... I try to be positive in terms of giving them feedback about the pictures I make. And at the same time, not making people feel uncomfortable. As an example, I would never say, wow, you're hot looking or you have awesome boobs or, you know, something like that. I appreciated you know, that. Well, <laughs> no, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say anything that I felt might further kind of reinforce them being objectified. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I also let people kind of choose a little bit this this notion of how you present yourself to the camera. Mm-hmm. Like there's three ways or four ways of, that you can do someone's portrait. 
I think one way is that, you know, I th- you have an image of yourself mm-hmm. as the therapist. You have an image of yourself as... We're going to deconstruct all of this. It's going to be awkward. <laughs> <Go on. laughs> you have an image of yourself perhaps as a mom. You have an image of yourself as a, as a daughter or yeah. whatever, right? And we project that image out. Well, you know, as a photographer, I can say... Well, that's bullshit. I know who you really are, and I'm going to cut away all that pretense, and I'm going to reveal that special thing about you that no one else can see but me. So essentially, you're going to break me like a horse. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I don't, I don't do that. All right, the other cool. way, the other way is that I have issues about you. I got you. This right. is where, if we were to analyze this as therapists, that's when you're projecting, like, right. you remind me of my mother, so I'm going to make you feel that way right now. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and the pictures are more about me than mm-hmm. they are about you. And the third way is that I can embrace how you project the image you project out about yourself, mm. and I can make pictures about that. And that's the course that I've chosen to go with in my work. I will say the experience was interesting, um, thinking about all those images that I portray of myself. One is a lot of humor and sarcasm, and I know that it's a mask. You all know it's a little bit of a mask. It's a way you kind of like protect yourself, right? So when you were taking my picture, I um, I was smiling a lot, like a lot, and I know that some of it was coming from awkwardness, and I think you could tell. And so what's funny is at the end of many of the pictures, you were like, why don't you work with a little serious face? You know, I kind of want to see a little more of just like, I don't know, it was like you wanted more of my thoughtful, pensive self. And actually some of those are actually some of my favorite pictures because they felt like they captured just this other side of me, not the one that's like, ah, I'm naked. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And, you know, and, and absolutely, it is an odd dynamic. It really you is. are uh, on the backdrop in the studio. You're mm-hmm. naked. I'm clothed, just mm-hmm. to be clear. There's I'm, a power dynamic I'm in that. Always, <laughs> I'm always clothed, you know. And worse than that, I have a, a machine in between the two of us. Mm-hmm. But that's where me going and showing you, I'll take some pictures when I think I've got something that I think reveals something nice. Mm-hmm. I'll go and as you remember, I'll flip the camera around and I'll show you to try to reinforce a little bit. And I've, I found that also makes people feel much more comfortable. Yeah, well, because it's not like you're hiding all of your pictures from them, but like you are showing them, here's what it looks like. What do you think? Of, I think you even asked a couple times too, like, what do you think of this? I thought this was really cool. Yeah, it's it's not, you know, there is an element of collaboration in doing that, and mm-hmm. I kind of embrace that too. I mean, it it's an interesting mix of people that I work with because uh, there's one person, as an example of the people I photographed this summer, mm-hmm. there's one person who I photographed every year since 1984. Okay. So we have a very long history together. Uh, there were three or four people that I consider some of my closest and dearest friends. Mm-hmm. And then there were what I jokingly call some of my regulars, people that I photograph for more than three or four years mm-hmm. and who come back in the studio. And then there's a group of people, this year it was about a third of the people, who I'd never met in my life until they walked in the door of my studio. Mm. And then you say, okay... This is what we're going to do. What do you think brings somebody to your studio? Like what? Because I'm sure you've heard a lot of stories. So what are, for the person who's there forever, like your lifer versus the person who's only coming in once and may never come again, what do you think is drawing them into doing this? Well, some of my, some of the people that have come back 
over the years uh, from multiple shoots. In that case, I think there's an awareness that our bodies are changing and that they are truly interested in having kind of a document of how we change over the years. I mean, I'm 67 years old myself. Mm-hmm. I'm aware of how my body's changed. We were talking earlier. I, I do self-portraits of myself. I, I was curious if you ever put yourself in the spotlight. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. How does it feel being in the spotlight? It. <laughs> It, it's not so bad when you're doing it yourself. I had an alumni who contacted me a couple years ago. She'd been an alumni, oh, oh golly, for more than 10 years. She'd been out of school for a while. And she was doing a lot of environmental nudes. And she said, I'm coming to St. Louis. I'd love to see you get caught up. I said, oh, yeah, that's great. She said, and I want to photograph you. <laughs> and I said, well, all right. You know, that's... and... Uh, <laughs> And, and for me, it was super hard because mostly I was so self-aware. Mm-hmm. As a photographer, I was worried about where my elbow was, was my head turned the right way, did my broken nose look funny, you know, that, mm-hmm. that, you know did I look too portly, you know, all those kinds of, of things that we all kind of think about. And I, I feel that doing that makes me a better photographer with other people because it it puts me in a mindset that I have to be aware mm-hmm. of potentially how self-conscious and uncomfortable you might be in that situation, even though you want to do it. Mm-hmm. Well, you have to walk the walk. You know, I was thinking about it. And, um, you know, like I was thinking actually about sex briefly when, when you were talking about that self-awareness and the awkwardness or just that, like, is my arm, is it supposed to be here or here? And actually for sex, a lot of what draws people out of it is self-awareness is exactly that is, oh, is my breast look the right? Does it look right? Is my arm where it's supposed to be? Am I thrusting the correct way? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's that self-awareness that really takes people out of that moment. But even in this photography experience, my assumption is when people can kind of get lost in the moment and allow themselves to be vulnerable, that's when they really make the magic happen or when you make the magic happen. Yeah. And, and again, you know, the range of body types that I photograph, I mean, it's pretty remarkable. Uh, and I, I try to celebrate that. You know, I think I, think I can make, it sounds really pretentious, I'm, I think I can make anybody look good. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if, because I've got a lot of experience working with all different kinds of people. And uh, it isn't represented as much in this group. But I've also been doing a lot of couples, and I've done some throuples, and uh, I've done some gay couples and some lesbian couples. And, you know, they present a different kind of dynamic because then suddenly you're dealing with a pair as opposed to one person that's kind of interacting with you. Well, so what is what are some of the differences? So, like, some of the pictures in front of us, there's pic, there's two people here. There's actually... Looks like six women in this picture over here. What do you see are some of the differences when you have more than one person that you're photographing? Oh, it's all about the interaction between them. And uh, when it's just one person, it's pretty much between me and them. Yeah. You know, I, I don't do a lot of... If you look at the bulk of the imagery that I have here, there are very few where there isn't eye contact with me. Yeah, because they're making eye contact with the, the camera, it looks like. Trying to pick one. This one looks very covered up so that nobody will, uh, I don't think I'll get banned. But like, this is a picture of one of them where he's got her kind of covered in yeah. like a shield. Yeah. Hopefully Facebook doesn't freak me out on this. I'm like, oh, she ruined our lives. 
Well, I, I'm very lucky that I have a 5,000 square foot studio, mm-hmm. and it allows me to have six different shooting bays in it. It's not unlike being in a sound studio where you have four or five different studio setups where you can use different kinds of lighting and different kinds of backdrops and set a different mood in each one. And I'm very fortunate that I've accumulated enough equipment over the years where they're all set up a little differently. And I can have one little experimental set that I can play with. And this year, I was working a lot with uh, very sheer fabrics Mm -hmm. and dealing with that idea of veiling and dealing with that idea of the things you can see and the things you can't and kind of creating almost like a little more of a dream kind of Mm -hmm. thing going on. Well, and I see that you've got that with some of your group photos, too. I'm not necessarily going to show these, but... um, there's the dream sense, but then there's also yeah that one would be a good one because I want to I want to put a few out there, but ones that are a little bit covered so Facebook doesn't Facebook doesn't freak out. But with these group photos, it looks like you're having them interact in different ways. Some of them aren't even looking at each other. Some of them are, but the what's kind of the reasoning behind some of the positions for you or how you put people together? Well, when you teach art history, when you teach the history of photography, you have a kind of an awareness of that. I've taught in Italy 13 times. Mm -hmm. I've been very lucky uh, to have taught in Florence. And you're always going into the museums and you're looking at a lot of Renaissance work and you're looking at a lot of Baroque work. You're looking at a lot of work from the history of art and painting in terms of the representation of the human figure and the fact that painting at that time was very much about storytelling. Mm-hmm. Most of it was about uh, biblical storytelling, if you will, <laughs> you know. But it nonetheless, within those kind of basic premises of, uh, we'll, we'll say, the Annunciation or something like that, that there's a biblical story being told, but it's kind of set in the Renaissance period, and mm-hmm. it's kind of saying something about the man who went and came up with all the money to hire the artist to do the painting for the church. Mm -hmm. Well, that kind of tableau, if you will, I think is something that I'm very interested in too. I gotcha. You know, I actually traveled to Italy and they had these fun inside stories. One of them though is that Michelangelo, he's the one who painted the Sistine Chapel. He didn't want to do it. He was actually pretty pissed. So as a fight or like a spite back to the Pope that forced him to work, he made a bunch of naked people. (laughs) (laughs) Like he made everyone naked. And then after Michelangelo stopped, they hired an underwear painter to cover up all of the genitals or as many of the genitals as possible because he knew he they, there was a very serious spite going on between the two. <laughs> it's all about it's all about how people understand nudity in that generation. And it's true it's true for us now too. Mm-hmm. I mean if you think about um, You know, the representation of, we'll say again, the representation of the female figure in Mm -hmm. the 30s, in the 40s, in the 50s, in the 60s, the 70s, and and up till today. Uh, What was considered uh, an ideal female form? What Mm -hmm. was considered the, you know, the goal, if you will? Uh, That's kind of changed over the years. And of course, what's acceptable in terms of what you can see. I mean, uh, uh, Edward Weston, one of the great American photographers, landscape photographer, still life photographer, uh, a figure photographer, his work is very sculptural. Mm -hmm. He's one of the modernist masters, if you will. Well, he shipped 
a body of work to New York, to the uh, Museum of Modern Art. And at the time, and this was, I think, believe it was the 30s or the 40s, he had to send it through the post office. There was no UPS, there was no FedEx. And the post office intercepted it, and there was nudity, and the the guideline for pornography was if you could see pubic hair. Oh. And if you could see pubic hair, it was pornographic, and the work would be destroyed. And it was only through the intercession of some highly placed people at the museum that the post office didn't destroy the show because that was a test in the 30s and 40s. Huh. A test for pornography was pubic hair. Now, that seems like kind of a random kind of thing, but it just goes to indicate that what we consider socially acceptable in terms of how the body is kind of understood uh, really does change with the generations. Well, there's a lot of, um, I mean, I want to add to that. I, I feel like there's a lot of shame around body um, in our world. You know, I was thinking of pubic hair now, like how that's still actually represented in Japan. Like they cover yeah. pubic hair even in pornographic movies. And I, I don't know, I was thinking of just these images and and these women, and I would never see these in magazines. I, I think that actually even when you see this, so like Curves, for example, these are women who, some of them bigger forms, some of smaller, some of shorter, some of them taller. And... Um, I don't think I've ever seen this much representation of the body um, in a magazine oh, in my thanks. life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I think it's wonderful. Actually, no, I, uh, it, it's <laughs> absolutely. I've never said to anyone, "Nah, your body doesn't look the right size." I'm not interested in working with you. You know, there are some people who are great to work with, but for me, one of the one of the things that makes somebody an interesting person to work with is. Um, kind of how do they interact with me? Are they kind of like in the moment? Like I will rarely use commercial professional models. And one of the reasons is that too often they get into their own head. Uh, if you model for a drawing class, you're in one position for a long time, it's crazy boring. I've done mm -hmm. it as an undergraduate, so I know just how boring it is. So what you wind up doing is watching the movie in your head, right? And you kind of zone out. <laughs> well, with this stuff, these people are not professional models, and they are in the moment with you. And to me, that's a big deal. Mm -hmm. So I've had people that, uh, again, are very non-traditional body types mm -hmm. and uh, you know they're great to work with because they're in the moment they move well they know how to how to I guess kind of present themselves uh, mm -hmm. to the camera and they bring something to it you know and, and I think it changes over the years again I have a very dear friend who I've been doing nudes of I guess about seven or eight years now mm -hmm. and uh, she's just turned 51 and uh, her body's really changing on her. And in particular, her breasts are getting really large. Mm -hmm. And uh, she really wanted to be in my photo. She doesn't model for anyone else. She wants to be in the photograph. She wants to be part of it. She doesn't move particularly well. And mm -hmm. she doesn't, uh, she's not especially expressive. We we're halfway through the shoot this summer. And she turned to me and she said, am I getting any better at this? <laughs> so she really, she really wanted to become better at it. Mm -hmm. But uh, she, you know, she knows she struggles with that. Mm -hmm. You know, something you said earlier is that you're getting more women in their 40s and 50s that are finally okay with their bodies. Yes. Yeah. 
why do you think it's happening then? <laughs> or what do you think's going on with that? I'm I'm not exactly sure. I'll also tell you that I've also learned not to dig too deep. No. <laughs> Just let them be who they are. <laughs> well, no. I mean, it I think this is very true that some people find this very therapeutic. Mm-hmm. Some people find this very empowering. I've had people that have actually cried at the end of the shoot only because they felt just that, that, the, that this was such a, a wonderful experience for them. Um, and I know that I'm not, unlike you, I am not a trained therapist. That uh, my wife, who is a, a therapist, a licensed therapist, has at time cautioned me about practicing without a license. Mm, and I know better. I, <laughs> I know better than She's to, like, don't do therapy, Stan. You're just gonna hurt them. <laughs> oh yeah. Well I no, I think you can start digging into people and I learned this mm-hmm. as a as a professor too, with students. If you have a student who is, you know, there's a lot of things you can help students with, but at some point, people that are really kind of torn up, they mm-hmm. need professional help to get to a better place. And for me to have the kind of the height of avarice to think that, oh yeah, I can, I can do that. Mm-hmm. You know, sure. I have tenure. <laughs> Stan, when you photographed me, you told me a story of the oldest person that you ever took photographs oh, yeah. of. Yeah. Will you tell them the story? Cause it's hilarious. <laughs> um, I was doing a project where I was using a lot of uh, collage material mm-hmm. that referred to medical technology. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to make these collaged images that had illustrations that dealt with uh, kind of uh, how, what state-of-the-art medical tech. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to photograph somebody as old a person as I could find. And they're hard to find. You know, it's hard to find, you know, people that are in their 60s or 70s who want to get naked for you. It really is. And I'd heard about this woman who had modeled in her 60s for the art school for drawing classes. And I tracked her down. She was 82 years old at the time. And her name was Ruth. And I, I called her up, and, and we're kind of chatting a little bit, and I'm explaining the project to her. I tell her, it's a studio shoot. It's indoor. It's heated. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, she said, well, okay. She said, but she said, they won't be nasty, will they, honey? <laughs> and I said, no, no, Ruth. They, they won't be nasty. So, I wonder what her position would be, like I, what makes it nasty versus not. I, but all right. I'm, not, I'm not so sure. And she came in and she got undressed. And again, she'd modeled in her 60s. So it wasn't like she was totally Nothing new. new. <laughs> and, you know, she looked like an 80-year-old naked grandma, you know. Mm-hmm. And I thought she looked pretty good considering, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, we, we had, a I thought, a very productive shoot. It went really well. Mm-hmm. So... You don't really know what's in people's minds when they come into the shoot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always thought that was such a cute story. And that didn't you say there was something that happened after she oh, passed? Well, the, sad, the sad thing that happened was Ruth, being a very caring person, lived on the south side, looked out her back window and saw that her na- it was an ice storm that day. And she saw that her neighbor left her garage door open. So she said, oh, and I'll close their garage door. So she puts on her house coat and mm-hmm. goes out and slips on the ice, cracks her head. She's dead 24 hours later. Mm-hmm. That 
odd thing, though, was that a week later, I got a phone call from her family, and they said, we understand that Grandma Ruth modeled for you recently, and we were hoping to get some pictures to use at the wake. And I, <laughs> I said, you, you guys know what kind of pictures Grandma Ruth did they, did they know that she had not, done nudes? I don't think they did. <laughs> They're like, oh, Grandma, how cute. She got fish. <laughs> Little did they know. Little did they know. Yeah. So, Were you still able to give the pictures? I made some very tight crops. Okay. Gave them a couple of pictures. <laughs> I appreciate that. It's all about the cropping sometimes. How did the family respond to the fact that they were nudes? Or did they say anything? Well, I finally had to tell somebody and they were they were a little shocked but i think they knew grandma ruth pretty well no oh, okay <laughs> i mean if her first question was were they nasty i mean they probably knew a few things about grandma ruth i, I don't know <laughs> well so like uh where does your work end up it my my goal for my work and i think artists have a lot of choices where they send their work you can go the traditional gallery route mm-hmm. where you kind of exhibit in either Commercial galleries like uh, a Bruno David or, you know, galleries like that here in St. Louis, you can show at uh, uh, kind of academic or not-for-profit galleries. Uh, we have plenty of those here in St. Louis as well. Or you can go the route of uh, collections and museums. Mm-hmm. And I, in my career, I made that decision to go with collections and museums. So uh, traditionally, the way I've done it is I have relationships with various curators and I bring the work to them, show them the work and they very often will buy it. They'll put it in their collection. Sometimes it gets shown. Um, I do show my work uh, in kind of for-profit and not-for-profit spaces, but my goal is to get my work into collections because for me, you can have the biggest show in town. It's up for a month. People see it. Maybe they buy a few prints. It's very nice. Uh, but at, when the show's over, it's down, and it's all back in your studio again. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm much more interested in having work that's going to be in a museum where people will be able to look at it for many years. So I have work. Uh, I have figurative work in the St. Louis Art Museum, mm-hmm. and I also have it at the Kemper Museum of Art uh, on WashU's campus. Oh, I see. And I think I also have work, oddly enough, at the Museum of Contemporary Religious Art at SLU. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there you go. (laughs) Well, somebody donated some of my work to them. That's how I, Mm -hmm. I know. They contacted me and said... What's this? What's this worth? <laughs> <laughs> it's worth a million bucks. Well, that's what that's yeah. worth. Oh no, it's priceless. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, what would be? Because we're towards the end of the podcast sure. now, so I guess I'm curious. What would be maybe your final message that you'd want the listeners to know about either you or what you do or why you're doing it? <laughs> well, it's big broad, right? Sure. <laughs> For me, it's all about. Maybe the word celebrating is too much, but that it's that it's okay to go and uh, and kind of appreciate the human body in its all its range, and in particular, this ageism that I think we're in our culture in America, in particular, uh, that you know you can be really beautiful at any age. Mm-hmm. You know that there is a beauty in the human form and condition at any time in one's life. And uh, 
yeah, I, I just want to make pictures about that. That's what I'm interested in. Um, you know, and, and that comes in all different shapes and sizes and ages. So uh, my goal right now is that, uh, you know, I've been trying to find older and older subjects, mm -hmm. you know, because I'm kind of interested in that as I get older. I'm interested in how people look when they get older. Mm -hmm. So that's part of it, too. But I think next year I'm going to be doing uh, more couples. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be doing uh, more non how to, to non-gender identifying couples. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we're going to see where that goes. Because the great thing about being an emeritus professor is that you're not like under the clock. That if, I, if a project takes two years or three years or four years, that's what it takes. Okay. Well, Stan, thank you so much sure. for joining me. Sure. And my, my great pleasure. I'll just restate. This has been Stan Strombecki. Emer I'm not going to say it. What's emeritus? So emeritus. Said, emeritus professor of art, Washington University. You've been listening to www.aboutsexpodcast.com. If you want to visit me, go to www.therapistinstlouis.com. Or you can actually email me at angelaskirtu at gmail.com. I have one plug that I'm putting in. For Squish, actually, S-Q-S-H. This is the St. Louis Queer Support Helpline, and it's a volunteer-run peer support helpline that provides free, confidential, and identity-affirming emotional support and resource referrals for and by the St. Louis LGBTQIA plus community. You can call the helpline anytime between Fridays to Sundays, and their number is 314-380-7774 to chat with a highly trained queer support volunteer. I'm your host, Angela Skirtu. Stay kinky, St. Louis.